0: Now, when you read through Revelation, more is said about the wrath of God in the Revelation than any other book. Sometimes in ignorance, people will say, well, I don't believe the God of the Old Testament, but I believe the God of the New Testament. You ever hear that? They've never read the New Testament, especially Revelation.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a study in the book of Revelation, and earlier this week, Pastor Carl gave some background on the book, including the author and the various positions taken by theologians about how to best interpret this book. Today we're going to begin to dig into the finer nuances, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 1. Ironically, when Pastor Berge preached this message, the coronavirus was still years away. So, in one of his illustrations, he talks about what people did at the time of the Y2K crisis, at the turn of the millennium. But the warnings he gave when he first preached this message still apply today. Even though Revelation is a book of prophecy, the warnings found in it are far, far worse than even what we're experiencing in the year 2020. But we should not let that discourage us, for as much as the Revelation warns us, It also gives hope to those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ.
0: Would you take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1? For those of you joining us for the first time, last week we began a brand new series on this book. We'll go through, by God's grace, Jesus doesn't come back first. Every single chapter and every single verse. And this book will capture your attention, I promise. It will stir your imagination. And it will point you to the grand and glorious finish that God has for this world. We saw the word revelation is the Greek word apokalypsis. It means an unveiling. And so some of your books have the title over it, The Apocalypse. And that's from the first book of the Bible. The titles are not inspired. They were written there by publishers to help you find out where you are in the Bible. But it's rather interesting that a book whose meaning is, refers to something that is revealed in open. For many, it is a mysterious book. It is a closed book, even some Christians. In fact, most pastors today no longer preach the book of Revelation. And one of the reasons that makes it so mysterious is because of all the Old Testament references and our ignorance to the Old Testament and our ignorance of the promises, the unconditional promises that God made to the Hebrew people. We mentioned last time that there are over 300 References to the Old Testament in the 404 verses in the Revelation. That's about 75% of the book. And so the Old Testament references are never introduced like Isaiah said or Moses said or Hosea said, but they're woven like a beautiful tapestry. And we'll see why all the way through this marvelous, marvelous book. Now, it's confusing to many because they apply one principle of interpretation for the Old Testament. And typically the same for the New Testament, but they apply a different way to interpret the revelation. But God within the scriptures gave us the key on how to interpret any passage of scripture. We see taught by Jesus and the apostles and even different Old Testament prophets interacting with other prophets that we are to interpret the Bible in its plain sense. We take it in its historical, literary, context, and then apply it. All right, let's pick up where we left off. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, To Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory in the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. Now, some of you remember the Y2K crisis that happened right at the turn of the century, and it struck panic across America and even in many Christian homes. I remember the bookstores pushing all these books that you needed to buy to be prepared for the Y2K crisis that was coming. Many of the Christian broadcasts, even on our own station, were dedicated to the Y2K problem. In fact, there were Christian companies selling food storage supplies, even one company that was selling windmills. Several people would call on the Bible line and ask me what I thought about the Y2K thing, and I said, I think it's utter, sheer nonsense. And I heard from some people, they said, I was irresponsible towards God's people. Some Christians moved away from the cities into the countryside, and they appealed to Luke 21.21. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. The problem with their behavior is Luke chapter 21, and that verse is referring to a coming day that has never been on the earth, the Great Tribulation. It's actually written to Jewish people who are living in Judea, not to Americans living, say, in Chicago. Not only are people curious about the future, and by the way, you should be curious about the future. You should be curious about the return of the Lord from heaven. In fact, if you're not, you ought to be because God tells us in 2 Timothy 4 there is a special reward for those who love his appearing. But you ought to be curious about the future because God says if you are and you understand the implications of prophecy, it will change your life today. John wrote these words in 1 John 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So wanting him to return is a good thing, but you must guard yourself against the extremes. Peter tells us in his second letter that there will be markers in the last days who will come. And they'll say, where is the promise of his coming? Everything remains the same just like it has from creation. Peter says, this one fact escapes their notice. God has intervened in time and space before like he did with the great flood. Even so, he will intervene in time and space again. And they, these mockers just call what we teach this morning, pie-in-the-sky theology. But neither must we close our eyes and refuse to see what God is doing in our world, especially as it relates to Israel and even Jerusalem. If you want to know what God is doing on His prophetic clock, look at Israel and more specifically look at Jerusalem. But we as Christians must avoid the false prophets of our day, some who enter into Christendom, some who have set dates, who say they have a word from God. This book itself, the revelation at the end, will warn us about adding or subtracting to the revelation he has given. But the truth is, is that the human heart craves to know the future. That's why today there will be millions and millions of hits across our great country of people who will check their horoscopes because they want to know the future. I heard about a pastor in Honolulu being hustled on the streets of that city by a fortune teller who said, for a sum of money, I will tell your future. And he said, you mean to tell me that you can tell me for this sum of money exactly what I will be doing at this time tomorrow. She said, I can. He said, I'll tell you what. I will pay you double if you can tell me what I was doing exactly at this time yesterday. (laughs) The good news is that as Christians... We don't need to listen to false prophets. We don't need some new revelation, some new insight about the future. We have the Bible. And though we are not told the complete when, we are given much of the what, the where, the whom, and the why in the atmosphere, especially as it relates to the second coming. So our God is sovereign in the affairs of men and nations. And verses 4 through 8, which we are going to study this morning, will underscore that. God is a trinity. And we are going to see this morning a greeting from heaven. The triune God is going to greet His people and speak to us. And so we're studying this morning the revelation that the Father gave to the Son and then transmitted by an angel to the Apostle John, to us, His bond slaves. And if you are here today and you've not yet been born again, I would love to lead you to the Savior. Jesus said you must be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. But when you are born again, you become one of his bond slaves. But if you're not and you remain an unbeliever, this book will be very difficult for you to understand. It's written to his bond slaves, to those who have eyes to see it. Otherwise, you will end up mocking it. Now, let me bring us into the context because every text has a context. And without understanding the context, you can pretext and then distort the meaning of the scripture. So let's talk about the big picture for a moment and then we'll zoom in on the immediate. We saw last time that God, like an ax, gave us a divine outline for the book of Revelation. It's found in Revelation 1.19. John is instructed, therefore write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. According to verse 19, This book divides into three sections. Chapter 1 describes the past. Chapters 2 and 3, the present. Chapters 4 through 22, the future. Certainly you could further subdivide the book, but God has given us a divine outline, and I think for a purpose because when you stick to it, it creates any artificial interpretations and it helps us to understand what is actually going on. The things that you've seen, that's the past. He writes of it in chapter one, that glorified Christ in heaven. The things that are, that's the present. Chapters two and three, he writes of seven literal, actual churches that are present in his day. And then beginning in chapter four, all the way through chapter 22, the coming tribulation. He will give us a picture of the throne room of God in chapters four and five. Six through 18, the coming tribulation. 19, the visible return of Christ from heaven. 20, the great judgment of God and a picture of heaven in 21 and 22. So there's the book in chart form, the things past, the things present, the things future. Chapter 1 deals with the Christ, chapter 2 with the church, chapters 4 through 22 with the consummation. So we see Christ in his glory, we see Christ in his church, and ultimately Christ in his Judgment. Now, let's get a running start. That's the big picture, all right? And I hope before we are done, that outline will be burned into your psyche that you'll be able to walk yourself through the book of Revelation. And God wants you to do that. Then it becomes a tool in your hand that you can use not just in your own life but in discipling other people. Now in the immediate context, the verse opens the revelation of Jesus Christ. We noted last time that the word revelation in Greek as in English is singular, not plural. This is not the book of Revelations. It is the book of Revelation, singular. Now there are multiple visions But there is one unveiling, and it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It has a unified content, and it self-describes itself not as revelations, but as revelation. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I noted in some old King James Bibles, some will say the revelation of John. Some will say the revelation of John the divine, or John meaning the theologian. Most King James Bibles say the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, the chapter titles are not inspired. But this is not the revelation of John. It's not the revelation of John the Divine. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is about Him. It's not John's revelation. It's Christ's revelation. It's given to Jesus by the Father. Not because He's learning something. He is the omniscient God. He knows today the date and the hour He's returning in His glorified body. But it's given to him in the sense that he is the one who is going to unfold it. He is the one who is going to execute the great events that we see in this book. And he is the one who does the revealing. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him for what purpose? To show. He's going to show his bondservants something about the future. This book was not given to mystify, but to explain God more clearly. It was given to him to show his bondservants, his people, those things which must soon take place. Now the thoughtful reader will say, now wait a minute, what do you mean by soon? After all, this was written 2,000 years ago and it appears that very little of it has taken place. Well, seven times in the Revelation, God will use this word soon or many of your translations render it quickly. It is the word taxis. We get our word tachometer from it. You know, a tachometer, we used to put them up on our steering columns in our car, now it's standard equipment in a lot of cars. But it it refers to something quick or sudden. And we will see, his point is, is that once the events of the revelation begin to unfold, they will unfold very quickly. We will see the uh, sealed trumpet and bold judgments unfold in that way suddenly. And so let's read the entire verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to Jesus, not to John, but to Jesus, to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it secondarily by his angel, to his bondservant John. Now, if you have the NASB, you will note the word communicated has a little footnote. It brings you out into the margin, notice, and you will see that the alternate reading is signified. In fact, that's the way the King James renders it. And maybe that's a better way to translate it. Signified. The first four letters of the word is sign, S-I-G-N. This book was signified. It is given in signs, and idioms, and pictures. It's the same word that John uses for miracle in his gospel. There are different words in the Bible for miracle. Teros, that describes the wonder and awe a miracle produces. There's the word uh, dunamis, which uh, speaks of the power of a miracle where God alters the laws of nature. But then there's the word samion that John uses throughout his gospel. And it's for a miracle with a message. John selects seven specific miracles in his gospel to show that Jesus is the Christ and in believing in him, you'll have life in his name. He uses that same word here. He's telling us God is giving us signs or symbols that have a message behind them. They're speaking of real events, but God uses symbols, and we will see why before we are done, to communicate this great portion of apocalyptic literature. But these symbols depict real people, real situations, real events. I told you last time, sometimes people will ask the question, do you interpret the Bible symbolically or do you interpret it literally? And the answer is yes. You interpret the symbol and then once you understand what the symbol means, you literally believe it. And so in this chapter, we're going to read of seven golden lampstands. But God will interpret it for us in the chapter itself, that those seven lampstands refer to seven literal churches. Or if the Bible describes Satan as a great red dragon, you don't conclude, well, the devil here is described symbolically, therefore there mustn't be a devil. No, he's using a symbol to describe his ferocious and cruel nature. And so you interpret the symbol and then you literally believe it. But here's the point. The Apostle John wants you to know that this revelation was signified to him. It was communicated to him through symbols. And the key for understanding most of these signs or symbols are right in the book of Revelation itself or the Old Testament. Now, I told you Daniel was critical to understanding the Revelation. That's why we spent a year on it, because it unfolds the theological time frame and scheme, the schematic that God will use to pull off these events. But within Revelation, sometimes people say, well, I think this means this, and they give this bizarre and wild interpretation, and if they would just read a few verses later or in the next chapter, the actual symbol is interpreted, and they're way off, not even close. Close. But again, it's a mystery to many people because 300 of the 404 verses in the Revelation are Old Testament references where the symbol is explained. And we'll even see a little bit of that today. Furthermore, we read in verse two, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So the chief characteristic of this book reveals the Messiah, not in his earthly life, but what he saw, and we're gonna begin to study that over the next two weeks, of the glorified Lord in heaven. We're going to see the Lord Jesus not in his earthly life as we see him pictured in the Gospels with the exception of that one glimpse at the transfiguration, but we're going to see him as the reigning sovereign Lord. Yes, there are parallels between his earthly life because God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he's not pictured in the revelation as many of you in your own mind still picture him walking through the dusty streets of Jerusalem. Beyond that picture and beyond the lessons we learn of Yeshua in those Gospels, God wants you to see Him also in His glorified, reigning, sovereign body. And so then we find in verse 3, if you remember, the first of seven Beatitudes. Seven becomes an important number in this book. The first of seven Beatitudes found in the Revelation. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. Revelation is a pretty amazing book, and it has a challenge, and it says basically read me, and if you will read me, you will receive a special blessing. Now certainly there are general admonitions all the way through the Scripture of the benefits of our reading the Bible, but this is the only book in all of the Word of God that basically says if you read this book and you hear what it says and you apply it, you're going to be blessed. So there are three things that are underscored, those who read, those who hear, and those who heed. It's essential they read it in the first century, and God gave the lector because this was pre-printing press, and unless someone stood up in the church and read the revelation, people would not hear it. So God gave a blessing for those who would take the time to do that, and certainly you have a greater privilege than any first century saint did. Most of you have a copy of the Bible in your laps. But God wants you to hear it, not just through the auditory canals, but with the heart, and once you read it and hear it, then He wants you to heed it, like James says, but prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. God has given us the revelation, not just to inform us about the future, but to change our lives, not to make us smarter sinners, but to make us more like Jesus Christ. And then the last part of the verse, it says, "'For the time is near.'" And I noted last time, there are two words for time in the Bible. This is not the word chronos that we get our word calendar or clock from, chronology. It is the word kairos that speaks of seasons. John is saying this season is near. The next great error in God's redemptive plan, because the Bible, we will see, teaches the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost. Jesus could have come at any time since the day of Pentecost. Now, I believe we're now even in the last of the last days, what Daniel calls the latter days. Those are the days at the end of time, right before the second coming. In either case, John recognized that the time was near because he believed it could have happened in his life, and he should have, because that's what the New Testament teaches. And any remaining prophecy that had not been fulfilled would follow in the seven plus years all the way through the millennium. Now we live in a day, a few thousand years later, when even in our lifetime, God has been fulfilling prophecy for the second coming. The second coming is a prophecy-driven event. There's all kinds of things that must happen. There's never ever in the history of the church, since the church was conceived at Pentecost, has there ever been a single prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the rapture. He could come before this is end. With that said, as we see, this prophecy-driven event, the second coming, unfolding, we should be all the more in tune that we're were that much closer to the rapture. Now, that's the context. Let's now begin to get into the meat of the sermon. Again, you can see this sermon is entitled, A Greeting from Heaven. And there comes a greeting from the Father, Spirit, and Son. First, a greeting from God the Father. Let's pick up in verse 4 where we left off last time. John to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now I recently received a long typed letter and there was no return address on the outside so I went to the last page, number one, because I don't read unsigned letters or occasionally someone knows that and they sign it but I couldn't read their signature if my life depended on it and I throw those in the basket. I've learned to do that. That was some good counsel I got 30 some years ago. But, I usually go to the signature page if there's no return address. Why? Because it adds meaning to the letter. It adds depth, like who is it that's speaking to me? Well, they were much wiser in the first century because they put it right in the introduction. In the introduction of every letter in the New Testament, you are immediately alerted to who is writing it. And that's helpful. He says in verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, when you see the word Asia in the Revelation, don't think of the continent, the Far East Asia that we have today. Asia in the New Testament realm was a province within the Roman Empire. Today, it basically encompasses the country of Turkey. You can see on this map, uh, here is Asia Minor. It's Little Asia, so to speak. Uh, as we call it today. And you can see this horseshoe-type shape of seven churches. When we come to chapter two, we'll start in Ephesus, we'll go to Smyrna, north to Pergamum, then we'll make our way southeast through Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven churches, seven real churches. You say, well, why seven? Why not three? Why not twelve? Well, we'll explore that. That's an important question. And why these seven? Why not the church at Rome or the church in Jerusalem or that great missionary church, the church at Antioch? God has a reason for that. But the number seven is not by accident either because the number seven is used in the Bible and especially in the revelation of perfection, of completion. Here's just a sample of some of the sevens here in the revelation. We're going to learn of seven churches, seven spirits mentioned Uh, four different times. Seven lampstands, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven peals of thunder, 7,000 people, seven heads, seven diadems, seven angels, seven plagues, seven bowls, seven mountains, seven kings, seven beatitudes, seven I ams. And that's just a small part of it. Because many times within a verse, you'll see a seven-part structure. And then sometimes even in the Greek New Testament, there'll be a seven- pointed grammatical structure. I mean, it's 777 all the way through the book, and we will see God has a reason for that. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, notice, grace to you and peace. These seven churches are recipients of grace and peace from the Father. Notice how the Father is described, who is, and who was, and who is to come. And that famous ironic blessing, you may not recognize it from number six, but virtually everyone in this room has heard it. You know that God's grace and peace is communicated to his people, Israel. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. And if you know Jesus Christ in a saving way, then you know something of his grace and you know something of his peace. And of course, this is going to be very important to these seven churches because they are being persecuted and the persecution is going to get much worse. Now, when you read through Revelation, more is said about the wrath of God in the Revelation than any other book. Sometimes in ignorance, people will say, well, I don't believe the God of the Old Testament, but I believe the God of the New Testament. You ever hear that? They've never read the New Testament, especially Revelation. You see more pictures of the wrath of God in this book than in any other book in the Bible. But the Revelation will still show these two words, the grace of God and the peace of God, that epitomizes what God wants His people to know, and even what God wants unbelievers to know, because God will be reaching out to those who have never heard the gospel before during the tribulation to give them a
1: chance to respond. To listen again to this or any of the messages in our series on the Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV2. And when you contact us, would you ask about supporting this teaching and evangelistic ministry? Our number again is 877 877- Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the Revelation. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.